Hey everybody, thank you for joining the Diary of a Bald Man today. So we're going outside of our known modus operandi. Uh, and I can't say that because I'm trying not to sneeze and cough during this because the sinuses today. On some of our previous interviews, we've talked to people, obviously from my background in safety, people that I've trained with, people that I've worked with. But today's guests are none of those. Uh, she does have a similar experience in that she worked in law enforcement and as a matter of fact, she just retired and is now going on to new things. Julie, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you today? Thank you good. for having me. Good. No, I, you know, it was great to see you within the podcast group uh, on Facebook and get to, you know, initially get the conversation going. But where are you joining us from today? Um, currently, I live in Cleveland, well, right outside of Cleveland, Ohio. I moved here from Chicago. I retired in March from the Chicago Police Department. I have 25 years as a 25 Chicago... years. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, before you transitioned, you know, was Cleveland like your first place you wanted to go to? And that's why you guys jumped on that opportunity? Um, no, um, no offense to Clevelanders, but I don't think this <laughs> is on anyone's list yeah. to be the top place to go. My husband Not is originally from the area, and nice. so we have been um, commuting back and forth for our entire relationship. So this is the first time that we will actually live in the same house permanently. <laughs> wow. That, Knock on wood. That's, that's got to be a change, you know, coming from Chicago to Cleveland. Yes, it is. It's not as crazy out here, that's for sure. Not as crazy. So, you know, to get people to understand, you know, you coming out of the Chicago, Illinois area, now going into Cleveland, when you were back in Chicago, what was the number one radio station for you when you lived out there? And were you like one of Man Cow's biggest, you know, fans? Uh, oh my God, talk about flash in the past. <laughs> um, I did listen to him, actually. You know, I am a very eclectic music listener, so I like all different stations, and I'm definitely... Um, I switch them all the time. So I don't have one specifically that I absolutely loved and listened to religiously. Um, and oftentimes I listen to various podcasts. So I don't even listen to the radio podcasts or just streaming music. I'm big oh, into that. Mm -hmm. So being from Chicago, another serious question that people always want to know. With your pizza, do you go for thin crust? Do you want the <laughs> pie? You know, what? what is a true Chicago pizza for you? I think true Chicagoans, and I can't speak for all of them, but I think we are thin crust people. We don't really do deep dish. Um, that's for when friends or family come in and we're taking them around, um, that we do deep dish. It's not bad, but um, if we ate it every day, we'd probably weigh about 500 pounds. That's hot. That's mm -hmm. hot. More to love. <laughs> More to it's love just... for sure. But it is it... delicious. I wouldn't, I would recommend everybody if you go to Chicago to try it, but I mean, we're, we have such great food in Chicago. I would not pinhole yourself into just deep dish pizza. Oh, I agree. Hey, I, I was up there for a previous assignment with People's Energy, and I got to actually see the taste. And mm, God, That's a good place know, to check out a lot of different food. Yeah, it, it was really good. Plus, you know, the people we were working with took us up and down places around Cicero and stuff like that. So, like you said, you know, very eclectic, very diverse type of, you know, uh, restaurants and ethnicity and stuff up there. So it was great. Yeah. And that was one of the things that I really enjoyed. And with you being from Chicago, <laughs> um, 
when you got to enjoy things like the taste and stuff, you know, what would you say is one of your favorite things outside of Chicago, outside of pizza? What was a food that you really enjoyed? If you had somebody to come up there and say, hey, you've got to try this. Um, for me, I don't eat seafood, so hard to tell on that. But I okay. am, I'm a huge, I love Italian food. Who doesn't? If you yes. don't, there's something wrong with you. Um, <laughs> I, and I think we have some of the best Italian restaurants in the in the nation that I've been to. There, there's such diversity in the Italian restaurants. You know, it depends on where their family is from, what kind of sauce oh. they have. You know, just different varieties of of food. So quite the selection. Now that sounds good. So you having spent 25 years in law enforcement, this is something I generally ask a lot of friends of mine. You're on uh, the road oh. all day. No, no, no. <laughs> so what was, what was your go-to meal knowing you made it get a call? Mine, I love dirty water hot dogs. I would try hot dogs <laughs> at different locations just because I knew, okay, I, I've got to get back into my zone. You know, supervisors coming. So I just choke and go. What was a food that you enjoyed <laughs> while you were on the street? Um, really, I, I love Italian beef. There's nothing like it. And unfortunately, they don't have any out here in Cleveland that I found, but I'll have to bring oh my, my own God. back when I go visit. Yes. <laughs> Italian beef is probably one of the biggest staples in Chicago. I love Italian beef, but you know, as you're, as you're on the road and you're driving around, thankfully I'm, I was in a city, you know, not a desolate type of place. There's plenty to choose from, but um, gosh, we we had all the local restaurants. We never really went to chain restaurants, which is funny, um, because I feel like there's they have so many you know mom and pop restaurants, and I love right, that. Right. So I do too. Hole in the walls. Yeah. Yes. So we really tried to frequent a lot of those, but I would say our number one go to is probably. I mean, we did eat pizza. I'm not going to lie, we ate a lot of pizza. <laughs> It's something that you can grab and go, and this, especially if we had a, a major demonstration going on, we could oh. just grab a bunch of pizzas and throw them in the car and eat them as we go. Well, you know, and it, it's funny, you know, let's get back into that law enforcement. So you sure. being in that area, what inspired you to become a police officer, and how did your journey from patrolling the streets end up with doing counterterrorism? Well, it's kind of funny how I got into it. You know, they say everything happens for a reason, and I really believe in that. I had no desire to be a police officer. It wasn't really? even, yeah, it was not even in my forethought. Um, I was a young mother. I was raising, you know, my son, and I was going to college. I wanted to get into psychology and I think work with children predominantly. And it's kind of foreshadowing how life forks out, right? So I, during school, when I was going to college, I had a friend. And that friend comes from a law enforcement family. Her whole family was in law enforcement. Her father, generational. You know, in Chicago, okay. it's, it's generational for law enforcement and, and fire. Yes. And so she wanted to go and take the test and did not want to go alone. And she asked me to come with her or, you know, at least go down there and kind of just be a support system. So I said, okay, I'll go. Um, I paid the, I think it was $25 at the time, which was a lot, a lot of money in 1998 for me. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, <laughs> Being 20, whatever I was, 23 years old. Um, so it was pre-cell phone years. So I go down to what is now the United Center, 
It's a huge facility. I could not find her. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just go in and take this silly test and see what happens. And um, I took the test. And eventually, I think it was like six months later, I don't even, like it wasn't, I wasn't even thinking about it. I could care less if I passed or didn't pass or scored or whatever it was at the time. And they sent a letter like, hey, we want you. And I was like, they had to blow you away. Really? Oh, okay. <laughs> now what do I do? And I, at the time I was working for ABF freight trucking company and I was also bartending and I was going to college full time. I was a very busy person. Um, so I looked at my dad and I said, what do I do? And he said, why not try it? You can always quit if you don't like it. And I Absolutely. thought, yeah. mm-hmm. and I thought, wow, that's great. The irony in the story is the friend that begged me to go for weeks on end never even went to take the test. You're kidding. Whatever <laughs> happened to her? She showed up. <laughs> she completed, happened. graduated college and went on to, um, a whole other type of field industry. Yeah. So that's kind of funny that she never even came. And it was her desire to become a police officer, not mine. And so, boy, talk about a long, lengthy career. I mean, I've worked on tactical teams. I worked in community policing. I worked as an undercover by officer in narcotics unit. And then eventually I went into um foot patrol team which was located in our central business district downtown area okay. and um you know we we did just that we walked around in foot and we handled uh, anything from shoplifters to um icicles falling off the building to directing traffic um parades protests sports games um concerts you name it we did it and then I kind of transitioned into working into our command posts, which if you have a major event, any major event you go to, most of them have some type of centralized command center where you're, right. you know, you're you're all in communication, you're watching the crowd and seeing what's happened. And um, so that kind of pushed me into counterterrorism. And I worked for the intelligence unit and eventually I worked for... Um, doing a lot of operations communications. So during major incident, any major incident that was occurring. Okay. Um, well, and I, I truly, I love that part. I love, uh, I love public safety in general. And as you know, being coming from a background of law enforcement, there's nothing better than, than helping people, right? That's why we go into it. Absolutely. Now, I did not get the 20-plus years that you did. I I went outside of that for different reasons, but, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that you did, yes. and one of my very best friends in Georgia, Stephanie Fitzgerald, was just like you, uh, but she did it, you know, she, she is now a psychologist, but she started in law enforcement because of similar interests like you, you know, wanting to help people, but on a different level, and mm-hmm. so it's just great to speak to someone you know, that is retired, went through the different processes, and now you're thinking about what's your next step. You know, right. It, yeah, I mean, think about everything you've done. But in, I, you know, um, go ahead. Go ahead. No, Jill. it's, you know, it's a lengthy career when you look back at it, because I think when you retire, you think, well, what can I do? And then you think, well, I can do a lot of things because I have all this Absolutely. diverse background. And, you know, one of the things I failed to mention is I, 
also assisted in the creation and implementation of our juvenile crisis intervention training program, which is now used nationally by other agencies. Nice. Mm-hmm. That that goes a lot into that community policing, and you know that that's got to be difficult, you know, especially with the youth of today and getting officers to understand how to approach them and things like that. Correct, and you know, unfortunately. Mental health, it was not really taught to us when I went through the academy. I don't know no. about you. Right. No. Um, and so when we know better, we do better. And I always try to explain to people, like, I've watched a lot of doctor shows, but I could like not doctor, watch. doctor, you mean? Doctor, you know, surgeon, like, whatever, ER or whatever. Oh, okay. The okay. I didn't know if you meant, like. Hospital no. shows. Okay. Yeah. You know. ER. I, yeah. Right. But we couldn't walk into um, a surgery room and perform surgery, right? We have to have some type of training and some type of knowledge and experience. And so with police officers, I think it has to be the same about mental health. We have to train them so they understand it better, so they can do better. Well, that makes sense because, you know, a lot of people don't think about it. You know, uh, back in the day, we reinforced use of force continuum. You know, and mm-hmm. then we had interpersonal communications and all mm-hmm. things like this, you know, to control things but not work with them. So when you look at your CIT experience, can you share a particularly challenging or memorable experience from your time? And how did it shape your perspective on law enforcement today? Sure. Well, CIT is is not easy. And, and let me preface this by saying that I have a a mentally ill son who is now 30. And at the time I was raising him and trying to get him properly diagnosed. So I kind of wear two hats in in the world of mental health. I am a parent of someone who suffers, but I'm also in law enforcement trying to train people. But what better experience, right? Mental health, going into mental health and dealing someone with the mental health crisis is something that takes a lot of time. So you have to have patience, which is why I'm not sure how they do it now, but back when we wanted people to volunteer for the training. We didn't want to force it upon people because you want the right people to show up. You want oh, to be, absolutely, yeah. Right. You want to be empathetic and, and sympathetic um, to what they're going through and dealing with. Um, I mean, I'll give you a brief example. There was a an elderly woman who had set fire to her apartment to the wall not for purpose i don't think i think it was an accident not really sure anyway um and i'll try to cut this story down very short but so i get the call from the management company at the time i'm in community policing and and she was elderly she was in her 80s and they said please can you come out this woman needs to go to the hospital she needs some treatment therapy medication whatever it may be um And by the way, we just want to warn you that this woman was in another altercation with police. She didn't live, not in the same residence, in a different location. And the police officers ended up tasing her. Oh. And so there's something with a lawsuit against the police department in the city of Chicago. And I thought, oh, shit. Can I swear? Sorry. (laughs) No, I thought, damn, oh, please. Okay. okay. I <laughs> no, thought, you could say whatever you want on here. Okay. I was like, oh, shit. Why me? <laughs> Why did I pick up the phone? Great. I don't want to be sued. <laughs> Biggest fear of law enforcement. Another story. But um, yeah. 
So I called um, the lieutenant in the CIT unit and said, you know, would you go with me and help me handle this situation? So we went over the apartment, my partner and I. She was female. I was female. My lieutenant. Oh, okay, good. I was going to ask pronouns. I didn't yeah. want to assume. <laughs> um, excuse me. My lieutenant and the sergeant that came with were male. So it was kind of funny as we started to gain entry into our apartment. Now we're talking our way in slowly. No. I could tell that even though she was saying some bizarre things, she did not like men. It was really setting her off and making her much more agitated. And so I kind of looked at my bosses and waved them off and said, you know, like, hey, listen, I need you to kind of stay back a little bit. Let us come in. So the the funny part is now we get into her home and now we're having conversation and now we see that she was making sandwiches and she has a very, <laughs> very large knife on the counter. And I'm looking at my partner and my partner's looking at me and right. we're trying to position ourselves around and my partner finally gets behind her and um, grabs the knife and and hides it, you know, out of sight, out of mind, knock on wood. There's and, a good meme behind this somewhere about handing somebody a knife to calm them down and make a sandwich. Well, we didn't hand them the knife. The knife was already there on the counter. Right, but right. she just, did offer us yeah. a sandwich, which I thought was nice. But, you know, they can be very unpredictable. So you have to proceed very cautiously. And you have to keep your, your distance for safety. And the last thing I want to do, I mean, this woman was about, I don't know, maybe 100 pounds. And wow. she's in her 80s. And the last thing I want to do is is put my hands on an 80-something-year-old person, right? Yeah, who's, tase him, tase him. Right, yeah. who is apparently in crisis. And I'm not, I can't even comment yep. on what happened before because I wasn't at that scene. So right. I'm just going with what I know in front of me. Um, so the long story short is she ended up trusting us. I called her granddaughter and I asked her to come over and sit with us and take her to the take her to the hospital. She finally agrees to go to the hospital. This was probably about three hours. Now, mind you, my bosses are sitting in the hallway with their foot in the door for three hours. Well, just, you know, as our backup for safety. Um, mm -hmm. But we talk her into coming into the squad car. We did not handcuff her. We bring her to the hospital. And I sat in that waiting room with her. I don't know how much experience you have with bringing um, people in crisis into the hospital, but it's not like when people are having a heart attack, they don't rush you in. They, no, they leave, absolutely not. You know, they leave you sitting there for a very long time. So I told my partner, I think, you know, it was like time for us to technically get off work. And she had kids and she had to attend to and my son was already being taken care of. And I said, I'll sit with the family. Go ahead. Go on home. And I sat with the granddaughter sitting on the floor with her grandmother and we had a, a very open and honest conversation about what had transpired before um and what had transpired today and she said officer joyce i want you to understand something first of all i come from a police family our whole family is police and i was shocked that she had said that and she said and i'm i don't know if you know this but we did sue the city of chicago and the police department for what had happened last time to my grandmother and I want you to understand something I did not we did not as a family file that lawsuit um, for some type of revenge what we wanted to do was raise awareness and change the training yeah. 
I can see that. I, mm -hmm. From what you've been saying, I could see where that'd be a necessity. Yeah, and I was like, wow. And she said, I am so glad that you showed up today. And so the long and short of it is we kept in communication for many years. And as I was doing CIT training um, outside of our, our department specifically, I would bring her to all these trainings to tell her story. You know, we maybe we didn't get it right the first time. And maybe it was to no fault of those officers that were on scene because they didn't know better and they weren't trained to do better. But now we got to redo and we did it right. And um, I did find out years later that she did put her mother into from the money that she got awarded from the city. Really? Um, her grandmother, not her mother. She put her into a beautiful um nursing facility where she was very well taken care of and lived out the rest of her years until she passed. And I don't remember what year that was. You know, your career becomes a blur, but. Oh, yes. Um, I thought everything happens for a reason. So I was meant to take that call that day and be that person that was there. And, but I will tell you that whole day, probably, gosh, I had to be there 10 hours at least at work from start to finish from answering the phone to leaving the hospital. It was a very long day. and But the thing is, it, it came out well. It was nonviolent. No one got hurt. And everyone was happy in the end. It, you know, and that's good to hear because, you know, it, you can never tell going into a situation whether you're doing a dynamic entry or anything like that, what you're going to face, you know, the mentality of the individual, um, you know, what were triggers, you know, like, when your male counterparts came in, your bosses, and then to find out that, you know, she really did not want male officers in there. And, you know, the thing is, it sounds like you had the great observation skills and communication skills necessary with the empathy and the sympathy of the situation to make that command decision, hey, guys, step out, you know. Correct. But you still had that that support. Correct. And, you know, I, I can honestly say both, in my current field as a safety consultant, previously working as a contractor in law enforcement, you can see and identify times when better types of education like the CIT is absolutely necessary. Yeah, I mean, CIT should be, I feel like it should be in everything. We should have it in colleges. We should have it in workplaces, um, especially workplaces. I mean, when you think about all the active shooters that we've had in the past yes. decade or so, People aren't aware. They're not taught. They don't know what to do. Everyone knows who the weird person is, right? At work, like, oh, they're a little off. Don't we oh, joke absolutely. about that? Isn't that like absolutely. the joke? Like, oh, I'm glad they like me because one day they're going to go off. Yeah, yeah. And it, it sounds funny because, you know, talking about law enforcement, um, we were using an analogy. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Super Troopers. Um, you know, so they oh, years showed, ago. Yes. Yeah, they showed the officers <laughs> that were cutting up. And then, you know, the one that was always a pain in the ass, he was always mm -hmm. like, push for this, push for this. And they mm -hmm. said, the one that was holding on too tight, that's the one that was going to snap. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and they were showing it with other figures. So I just want you to think for just a second, Julie. If you were to watch Chicago PD, who plays you in that show? Oh, gosh. Wow. <laughs> well, I've never, I've never seen it. I'm sorry. Okay. What about um, Super Trooper? <laughs> who plays me? <laughs> Um, I know, I, I I forget the names, but... Like, back when? Let's go with Heather Locklear. Wasn't she a police officer way back when? Yeah, yeah. yeah. or Charlie's let's, Angels. Let's use... Which one would yes. you be? Because you're oh, like, good. what, 
three foot 42 inches, something like Correct. that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a whole five foot one and a half. Yeah. I like to give myself the extra half. Well, um, <laughs> I, you know, I lift my shoes, I could almost make five, two. Yeah. In heels, I am six foot four. So. <laughs> Are you walking around in heels? No, I'm sitting right now, but <laughs> okay. I mean, I just want to make that clear. I seem taller than <laughs> sometimes, you know, and, and we're joking to cut up Ned, and this is good. I wanted to get back to your CIT for just sure. a second. But before I ask the CIT thing, outside of going into a situation in law enforcement, what was the most bizarre thing where you really couldn't negotiate or you didn't know what was going on? You had absolutely no training. Was there ever a really bizarre case or incident that just stuck out to you? You mean on the job? On the job, yeah. Um. Boy, if you can't uh, talk about it, yeah. But oh, I, no. I mean, I'm retired. I can, I can talk about anything. I mean, <laughs> bizarre situation. I mean, I'm, I, I, I worked I'll in the city one. of Chicago. There's a lot of bizarre situations I think you're not trained for. Some yeah. of them being there were farm animals in the middle of downtown. Yeah. Okay. Well, your you food know, was fresh from what I remember. <laughs> it was like, yeah. And I mean, it's kind of a funny story. So it, it was great. We had um, a homeless person and they had a rooster. And the rooster was making a lot of noise. So someone called yeah. on them. And then, and this is actually, someone took a photo of it and it became my friend's favorite photo. Because I am standing there staring at this person and the rooster thinking, I have no idea what to do because I have no idea the laws regarding roosters in the city of Chicago because I've never encountered something like this before. That is funny. That is now, funny. You being, what do you do? Honestly, it might be a little normal for you. Me? Not at all. <laughs> so outside of the bizarre thing, you know, as a retired officer, what would you say is your hidden talent? I mean, did you perfect the art of parallel parking or you know, <laughs> yes. you, you yes. could do amazing things with your ASP or APR24, whatever you used? Boy, parallel parking really is a thing. If you've, oh, if yeah. you've been in a big city, you understand it. If you're not from a big city, you don't understand <laughs> it. Um, tactically driving, that's another thing. Oh, uh, yeah. You have to, you have to learn that, when you retire yeah. to calm down a little bit. Um, boy, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure I have a lot of hidden bizarre talents that I don't know about. You, you know, one of the things I think you take from law enforcement or any, or military, um, or any first responder, I should say, is that you really learn the gift of gab, don't you? You do. You know, you, you really learn to communicate and read people. And at least you should, if you don't, then you were in the wrong career to begin with. No, but I don't. I, I, look, I don't know I like if it's like. Look at that. Mm -hmm. I I think you you're like a chameleon. You can mold into any situations, um, no matter what it is. Walk into a party, you know, be confident in yourself, be comfortable. I think yes. you, I I think being a first responder gives you a lot of confidence. Sometimes people become overly confident, um, and that's unfortunate. And I think sometimes it attracts the wrong personality and it makes situations worse. You know, people are super insecure. Now they have power, power of the badge, power of whatever. Um, but I think for the most part, um, we tend to be able to function in a lot of different scenarios, a lot of different environments with being comfortable. Okay. 
And, and that's good because this was going to be, you know, one of the last questions I was going to ask you because of where you were in counterterrorism. So in the context of the counterterrorism division, what were some of the key insights or lessons that you learned that you would be, you know, you would think would be valuable for the broader law enforcement community? Was there anything specialized in there, especially looking at where we have so many active shooter events, where we have, you know, so many, uh, assaults and riots and things like that. Do you think there's a key thing that would help law enforcement as a whole from your time with CT? Sure. I mean, boy, that's kind of a loaded question, right? Um, you, you can look at it from, from many different marks. I mean, no one expected those riots and they didn't expect them to be as bad as they were. And if anyone says different, they are absolutely lying. Um, I think we learned a lot from that, but we learn, we learn from our mistakes, and we learn by by doing things like that. One of, one of the biggest things is obviously social media is our friend, and we as law enforcement we have to be embedded into social media somehow, some way. If you're not, right. you're you're missing the mark. Um, there's also communications. Communications. I think we learned a lot from 9/11. I wasn't there, but I can only. Um, um, what's the word I want? I can only assume that yeah. fire and police were not connected at the time. And I know for smaller agencies, this is probably kind of still the case. Like we have to have that constant communications and we need one hub. We can't just have everyone on the street communicating. We have to have a offsite type hub to do the communications in case that one goes down for whatever reason that may be. We have to heed the warnings of people who suffer from mental health issues. That is one of the biggest things ever. I, I can't express this enough. Every active shooter that I have seen, and this is non-clinical research or anything like that. Let me no, preface by saying that. Right, yes. right. But the things that I've read, because obviously I take it very personal because of my son, I think, okay, well, where are their signs? I can't name one that I've read that there were not some signs that something was going to happen and people knew and no one acted. No one was intervening. You know, the old adage, if you see something, say something. Yes, absolutely. Why are we not doing that anymore? I don't know. I think people are just so, you know, because in some ways they look at social media, we see too much and, you know, they Mm -hmm. feel like they're being prodded into a response or they're being baited into doing things. And then you see where certain situations were set up to elicit a response. So yes. people are coming desensitized. You know, yes. it's like, let, let me see what happens. And I'll record it and I'll slap it up on TikTok and see what other people think. But that's Boy, it. Boy, you're you know. right about that. It, and that's just a personal view. And it's just my personal view on that. No, I, I definitely agree with that. We are very desensitized. I remember an incident where um, scaffolding fell off the John Hancock, and if you're familiar with Chicago, it's a very, very tall, tall building. And it crushed a car that was in traffic. Yeah, it was a very windy day, like extremely high winds. And I was the first car in the scene, and I remember going to that and trying to cordon off the area and tape it off. And um, there was, it was two mothers and their two daughters in the vehicle. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And I didn't know at the time what their status was, but I knew uh, obviously we had to get um, CFD there to uh, analyze the situation because the car was crushed. 
So it wasn't like I could go in and try to rescue them because I just didn't have the ability or nor the tools to do so. Right. So I was trying to make the scene safe. And I will never forget all these people taking out their phones. Now, this was very, gosh, this was early. This was way before Facebook, Twitter, um, TikTok, any of that. But yeah. taking out their phones to film it. And I kept thinking, how sick are you that you want to put this on film to show people? We don't even yeah. know if these people are alive in this car. I, I don't know. It just really, it blew my mind and changed the way that I they that I thought because never in my mind had something tragic occurred what I think to pick up my phone first and film it. So, yeah. I mean, that's it, that's just not something we usually would think about in our day, you know? Um, right. Although but, the, the, the good end of that, I have to say, in a, in a crazy situation is that having those videos for law enforcement may benefit um, prosecution later. Right. Yeah, I, so, I, I could see that. Sword. Yeah, there, there's a lot of relative value, you know, with some of these incidents. But then, you know, again, like with some of the active shooter events, some of the, you know, uh, individual violence events, it's like, you know, two of you guys, instead of filming, could have pulled these individuals apart, separated them, no weapons, but instead you let it, you know, escalate mm -hmm. to get to these things. Correct. Um, it's yeah, the day I, and age I, we live in. It's, it's it bizarre. Is. It is, you know, and, and we talk about bizarre and we talk about things, but, you know, what kind of impact, you know, is this going to have on future, you know, generations on their mental health, you know, where they're constantly seeing this and it's like, oh, well, I can up this, you know, and they go out and do some kind of challenge to see if they could be more aggressive, more violent, things like that. And, and so I worry about that because they're going to say, if that dude's famous, I'm going to be infamous. And- that's a concern I have. Oh, yeah. And and I think that happens a lot because social media projects that. And so I don't know if people understand the way your feed works. Oh, my gosh, I cannot think of the word for the life of me. But when you start to search things, it actually feeds you, you know, stuff about that. Like if I said, oh, my God, I love trees, right? And I'm, I'm looking up different trees and how to plant them, grow them, feed them. Oh, right, my, right. my feed is going to be all about trees. You're going to be in this bubble. So when situations happen that you're interested in, and let's say you have sort of a deviant mind, now it's going to feed that fuel. Now you're going to get those through all your social media channels. Right. I wish I could think okay. of the word, what it's called, but I can't think of it. I, I am not that tech savvy, no. so <laughs> hold on. I'm Googling donuts <laughs> right now. <laughs> Well, now you're going to get donuts everywhere. See, well, now it's baguettes. No, it's it's really true. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it kind of puts you in this box and and gives you this feed of, um, and so you don't even realize like there's other things out there. True, true. You know, and then it, it networks you with other people right. who like the same things, um, which could be good if you're looking at trees, but bad if you're yeah. looking at you know some type of violent act or. Yeah, that's true. You know, yeah, and the other part, you were talking about trauma, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I look at Chicago. We're having mass shootings consistently there, consistently. <laughs> and no one's calling it mass shootings. Isn't that crazy? And you talk about trauma. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean. Is it just normalized now? People, you know, 
it Chicago is, Myrtle uh, murder capital, you know. But what is it? Is it the economic base? Is it drug-related gangs? I mean, and, and that's all interconnected, I'm sure. Sure, sure. And I can't answer that because I would need to do a major study of the city. I don't think anyone really has the answer to that. But I feel like these kids have become desensitized. It's nothing for Absolutely, them to yeah. ride their bike down the block next to a crime scene and see someone laying with bullet holes in them. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and then they'll be eating ice cream. And, yeah. and so years ago, we used to call it urban trauma. I'm sure they changed the name right now. But <laughs> yeah, we're going to start. And that's going to have long lasting effects because when they hit an older age, then they're like, oh, having guns is normal. Shooting people is normal. Yeah. And uh, we've that's... almost normalized the, the trauma and destruction. Well, they're being reprogrammed because before mm-hmm. where they would have said, hey, we got to stop this black on black, white on white, uh, Hispanic on Hispanic, Latino. We, we need to stop this. You know, we, we need to negate this. But, you know, that's I, I, I don't want to say it's a mental illness. Again, I think it's reprogramming. You know, if you look at there was an old movie called Clockwork Orange. Oh, yes. And, and remember the, it well. Yeah, they took the guy, they strapped him to a chair, they kept mm-hmm. on videos, you know, to get him outside of that. And that's, in effect, kind of what somewhat social media and the things inside their environment, that's what's, you know, happening. They're being reprogrammed. This is a fascination thing. This one, I, I could care less, and this one makes me sick or volatile. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it is something to worry about. And, you know, luckily for people like you and others that have taken CITs, you know, the people that are going to be first responders are going to be trained on, hey, this person may appear volatile. This person may be non-responsive, you know. And is that something you think uh, you could continue training others on as the CIT? Is there a potential that you could go to some departments, agencies, first responders, and give them some more, you know, insight onto practical application and how it can help them in their communities? Um, sure. You know, I, I, we used to do it. We used to do more of an educational seminar than an actual training because training involves a lot of certifications by different states. I think each state has different standards. You have to submit it to their training board. Like, that's a, that's a lot, a lot of work. But obviously, and it's something that I'm... Why com- I'm sorry, ahead. Jewel. Is, is that, that why companies why so agen- Is that why companies or agencies are not doing it because of cost, time, and certification? That's a good question. I don't know, because if you're already doing training and you have certifications, why not go the extra step and get um, certification to put together some type of CIT program to train? And um, it doesn't have to be officers. You can go into workplaces and do it. You can go into schools and do it. I'm sure there's people out there now who are doing it. I just I can't think any off the top of my head, and I've kind of been removed from it for a couple of years. Um, you know, life just changes and things change. And I went into counterterrorism and the CIT thing kind of got left behind. But but I would say 10 years ago, mm-hmm. I hooked up with a friend of mine who was the program director for NAMI, which is the National Alliance for Mental Illness. And we put together a program under NAMI just to do educational seminars, which was very similar nice. to the training, but not a training. But now, obviously, you know, law enforcement has to be trained and certified and it has to be approved by their standards board that is great now 
this leads up into this question. Is that how the Behind Our Door got started? Ha, um, well, I mean, yes and no. Her and I have been friends um, since then. We actually met through NAMI. I came in there to get information and resources and education about my son and, you know, learn about the illnesses and and to help him as best I could because I was a very proactive mother with his illness. And so, yeah, I met her. We became friends. I became a very active volunteer within the NAMI program. I did all kinds of, they have Ending the Silence. They have um, support groups, Family the Family, Basics. Yeah. So I I became very active as a volunteer. I also volunteered for other organizations, mental health organizations. And her and I have remained in contact for 15 years on, mostly on, but, you know, we would, we would talk for hours. So the long and short of it is. Sorry for that hiccup, Julie. So could you pick right that back up? Sure. So the long and short of it is we have remained friends and then we started doing educational seminars in crisis intervention yep. for um, law enforcement agencies. And during COVID, her and I would have long conversations about our own kids. Um, she has a kid that suffers from mental health issues and, you know, different things, different resources, things we saw in the news. And I said, gosh, Nancy, we should do a podcast because I feel <laughs> like, I feel like there's, this information should be out there. There's nowhere you can go if you have someone you love or you yourself are diagnosed like, okay, what's step one? What do I do? Where do I go? Who do I call? Um, most people go to their doctor and that is kind of not the wrong move, but you know, there's a lot of doctors who just aren't trained in, in mental health and, and don't recognize it right away. So, um, you know, we're older, we're not young, and we thought we're going to figure this out and, and start a resource podcast strictly geared toward mental health resources. Okay. Nothing really outside of that. And maybe that will um, unfold into something bigger later on, but currently... I think it is. I think it is. I think you'll get listeners to call in and say, Julie, what did you notice? You know, because doctors said, oh, no, if he was autistic, he'd show this and this, this. But you actually haven't been through it. You're, you guys are going to be huge for that. What did you see? What did you do? Where did you research? Right. And that, I mean, that's what I pray that happens because, you know, originally when I was trying to get my son diagnosed <laughs> at a very young age, everyone kept telling me there's nothing wrong with him. He's a boy. He's just hyper. He has a lot of energy. And it took me five long years to get him properly diagnosed. He was put on. Wow. Five years. Yes. He was put on ADHD medication. His current diagnosis is bipolar one and with ADHD, probably anxiety, probably. I mean, you know, things, it ebbs and flows depending on, on his age. But the, the reality is when he was put on ADHD medication, they actually made the situation worse. And what I found out years later is that ADHD and bipolar, a lot of their symptoms mirror each other. And being uh, children, when they're growing and changing and growing and changing, and then it's really hard to get a pinpoint on what it is. And so what I've learned now, my son is now 30 years old, is that I don't get spun up on the diagnosis, but more about the treatment. So if you okay. think it's something, you know, try to find something in that realm. And I'm always for like alternative medicine, alternative treatments. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yes. I had, which you and I have talked about a little bit off the yes. show. 
Um, I'm always researching now. I'm like a crazy researcher, but um, <laughs> and eventually we hope to have a great guest on who talks about functional medicine and stuff like that because I think there's a lot more to it. I think, um, especially since we talked about trauma, let me just use that. Like when you go through trauma, your whole physiological body reacts. Correct. It's a biological. Yes. Let's repeat that. It's a biological change. So although we call it mental health, it's biologically based. And I think that's where a lot of people miss the mark. It's not a behavior. My son didn't have a behavior issue. And we didn't need to change the behavior, but we needed to figure out the biological base for his illness and how to treat that. So absolutely, you know, absolutely, and that's things that we just we just want to share with other families and and people going through it themselves and let people know that they're not alone. You know, it can be very scary and isolating when you're diagnosed or someone your loved one is diagnosed, and you know who wants to be the crazy person. No one wants to be the crazy person. So, I speak very openly and candidly about my life, about my son, about the struggles I've been through, physically, emotionally, financially, you name it. I've been through all of it. And I, I'm sure, and, especially with being in law enforcement going through all this. Well, that too, you know, and having yeah. that whole other aspect of it of crazy schedule and not being the parent I wanted to be and a lot of guilt. And, um, but I want families and people to know that you too can survive. There is another side of it. Keep going, one foot in front of the other, baby steps, keep going. Um, at some point, you will find the right treatment. You will find the right person to help you, and you will get there, and you will get better. You can get better. And and that's what your show is going to do, Julie. Combined, you know, with your co-host um, and everything, that that's just going to be a resource because other people that are going to be researching it are going to find you. But to help them find you quicker, how do they find your podcast? What is it hosted on? Uh, is there a YouTube channel? Where is it located so others with similar search needs can find you? Sure. The name of the podcast is called Behind Our Door, O-U-R, Door, Behind Our Door. Um, we are hosted on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, um, a lot of them. We do have Instagram. We do have Facebook. We are not currently on YouTube, although that is something we are looking to expand this year. We took um, a, a mini break over the summer because we've been doing it for a year, a year and a half, faithfully. And, um, you know, we have lives and I was moving and retiring. So we, we took a little break and we're going to come back with bigger and better resources. And we're always looking. So the other way, if people want to contact us, we have an email. It's behindourdoor@mail.com. People are welcome to send us questions or comments or you know, maybe they themselves have a great resource that they want us to put on the show. We would love it. We we don't know everything. We're always seeking, le learning, looking to see what the bigger and better thing is, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I hope, you know, as part of the resources, you know, people look at that and say, you know, all these years of doing the research and personally going through it, you know, they'll say, well, that may not work for me. And you could say, well, here's other options. And, and I think that you know that's great what you are doing with your show. Now, would you would you mind being on other podcasts so people can get additional information on this? You know, so if there's other show hosts and stuff, would you mind them reaching out through your email on there and saying, "Hey, would you guys discuss this with us?" Not at all. That's, Not at all. Okay. We would we would love okay. to. You know, the more the more the merrier. We want people to 
get these resources. We want them to not feel alone. So we would go on whatever podcast, myself, Nancy, both of us, whatever, whatever people want. We're very flexible. That is outstanding. Julie, thank you for your time. I know you're getting ready to go paint and I'm getting ready to go <laughs> find a way to get out of my chores. But, you know, is, is there any uh, last messages you'd like to give out before we end the show? Is there any, um, you know, I mean, you've already said, hey, you know, you can do this. You can find alternatives. Is there a final message you'd like them to think on or reflect on before we go? Words of wisdom. Well, I think the the biggest thing in life is never give up on hope because hope is always there. And sometimes your brain is lying to you. So believe the people that support you and love you. Surround yourself with positive people. That was great. That that was something most people need to hear, you know, because again, being empathetic, we know people are going through a bad time. Mm-hmm. And for those of you listening, you know, I want you to take everything you heard from Julie you know, you're going to have trying situations. You're going to have trying times. It's going to be a new challenge for you to overcome just like Julie did. Plan for the bad days. Prepare for when things collapse around you. Communicate. Ask for assistance. Reach out to Julie and her team. You know, ask it about what other resources available and engage in life. Now, get the hell out of here. Enjoy the rest of your day. Julie, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks um, for having me. And we're, we're going to have to have you back for a second show with another female officer. Sounds good. I'm ready. All right. Thank you, Julie. Thank you all. God bless. Thank you. Bye. Take care.